Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks that move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 140. Well, just ahead, Procter & Gamble price increases. Might be tough on customers, but it's good for P&G. And a company with a novel cancer treatment reports disappointing trial results, or does it? And we talked to a company under the gun from short sellers who have accused the company of fraud. You will be surprised what the company admits to. We're going to talk to Ideanomics CEO Alf Poor. This is an interview that you're going to want to hear. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn. Uh, but hit the subscribe button. Wherever you're listening to the show, make sure you catch every edition. And the drill down is also brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the drill down. We've got business stories behind stocks and move. Joining me as always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac. Hey, Corey, how are you doing? I'm all right. Uh, lots, lots going on. The market's uh, showing significant softness, so it's a great time to look at what's actually happening at the businesses underneath these stocks to figure out what's really going on. I would say, Corey, what stocks you're drilling down on today? Let's start with Procter and Gamble. Procter and Gamble trades under PG, and PG shares have gained just 21 percent in a year. Yeah, but a, a move this week after earnings. Um, and, uh, the earnings, you know, for the fourth quarter and looking forward, you know, these guys are very big in their predictions and sort of guiding analysts and nobody's surprised by anything. Nonetheless, uh, they said that organic sales were three to 4% uh, and will be even stronger in the future. Um, a lot of that coming from price increases, but they're saying that demand is strong. They're saying what they're calling very positive signs in the pricing front. Uh, what I thought was super interesting in this conference call was their discussion of, how they adjust price, how they test price. These guys are always testing price increases. They're always trying to optimize to see that they can charge the very most for their product without impacting uh, demand for that product. And so it what an interesting time when consumers are seeing um, very thick uh, savings accounts, very low credit card balances, um, and, and wage you know inflation, one person's wage inflation or one company's wage inflation is a pay raise for everybody else. So what does it mean for P&G? It means P&G can raise their prices a little bit, um, but it's not something that's new to them. And it's not something they don't manage on a very regular basis. And so some interesting comments from CEO John Moeller about how they are constantly 
managing their business model, testing, pricing, testing what they call innovation center, new products, new soaps, new cleaning products, new whatever, to see if they can actually sell stuff that customers want and jack the prices. They're testing that all the time. Here's John Moeller. Remember, pricing is an inherent part of our business model. Uh, as an innovation-centered uh, company, we aim to create products that address better every day uh, consumer needs and problems and can typically um, command some pricing while increasing the overall value proposition to consumers with those more efficacious offerings. Pricing has been a positive component of our top line for 42 out of the last 45 quarters and 17 out of the last 18 years. So while the level of pricing we're talking about here, to be fair, is, is typically a different level, this is not a dynamic that we're unfamiliar with. And so there is a dynamic they are un, not unfamiliar with, um, that being constantly raising prices. These guys are just finding a little more leeway to do so. I know that that's uh, some uh, stock people like to see that as a negative and inflation as a negative, but company, you know, people with thicker wallets that are able to spend money, probably good for business, not bad for business. I would think so. Corey, what is your next drill down? Well, I, I'm constantly keeping an eye on the supply chain issues. I want to look at J.B. Hunt. Supply chain issues? What are you talking about? It's a thing. Uh, is it? Oh, yeah. I didn't realize. I thought, the ports, I thought the ports were just working really well. So, JB, I'm just joking. Uh, JB Hunt trades under JBHT. Shares have gained 35% over the past 12 months. So, um, uh, the stock has is, is, had a, a great run of late also, not least of which because fourth quarter results were super strong. Uh, the company had... Three and a half billion in revenue for the fourth quarter. That's up 28% over the previous year. Profits up 55% to 323 million. Um, and so, you know, what was interesting in the conference call and what was interesting looking, digging a little deeper into the results was showing, yes, their costs are increasing. Uh, yes, it's tough for them to find people to manage their shipping facilities to, to, to drive their trucks and so on. It's also tough for them to get shipping containers. They announced during uh, uh, the most recent earnings that there were 6,000 containers they thought they were going to acquire in the fourth quarter. They've had to push those numbers out to 2022, but they expect those um, sooner rather than later. But boy, demand is just extremely strong for this business. Uh, they talked about the ability to add customers, to keep their existing customers happy, but they were actually turning away business because they just didn't have uh, the capacity uh, to add, or as I mentioned, they didn't have the containers, they didn't have the capacity, they didn't have the workers to add all the customers who are knocking on their door saying they wanted to do things. But again, uh, the market doesn't like that in the short term. In the long term, that can't be anything but bullish that people are knocking on their door wanting to do more business uh, and have more demand across the board. Here is their EVP of intermodal transportation, Darren Field. The good news is demand remains extremely strong. Uh, we have customer business that we uh, could could have onboarded in the fourth quarter that we weren't able to because of a slowdown in velocity and capacity. So we remain uh, really bullish on our opportunity to fill up that capacity uh, in the combination of new containers coming on board and a return to uh, maybe pre-pandemic uh, velocity 
statistics, we really feel strongly that we have a lot of demand. And we see that in other parts of our business. So there you have it, J.B. Hunt uh, just seeing uh, loads and loads of demand. And they, they do see things getting better on the supply chain front and that the containers they need and other things that they need uh, coming through to allow them to fulfill those needs from their customers that are, like I said, knocking on the door, wanting to do more business. Corey, what's your next drill down? I want to look at Cardiff Oncology. Cardiff Oncology trades under CRDF and shares have fallen 60% in a year. Yeah, really rough time for Cardiff Oncology, not least of which about 26% uh, uh, this week um, after reporting um, what have we're largely seen as disappointing results. So let's talk about uh, what Cardiff Oncology does. As the name might suggest, Cardiff is based by the sea. It is, in fact, in San Diego. Um, and they're focused on colorectal cancer, uh, in particular, a treatment they call Onvansteratib, which okay. is a second line of defense for cancer patients who have not had their first line of defense work. Typically with colorectal cancer at a certain stage, they start with some surgery where they remove a section of the colon and re re reconnect it, basically, yeah. um, or the rectum or whatever. And then they uh, treat with combinations of chemotherapy and radiation to get rid of whatever cancer might be left in the body. But when that doesn't work, uh, the second line option uh, is tough. Uh, in one of the most common treatments is something called fluororacil, which colorectal cancer patients love to call 5-FU. They literally <laughs> call it 5-FU. I talked to a cancer doctor uh, who told me once that uh, that one of her patients gave her, a, which, uh, when he was cured of cancer, of colon cancer, she gave, he gave her a, a T-shirt that said, FU, 5-FU. One of the innovations with 5-FU, which is a, a, an effective treatment for not just colorectal cancer, but also for um, other types of cancer, um, uh, pancreatic cancer, um, uh, 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 and some other cancers as well, um, is uh, breast, breast cancer, here's my list, breast cancer, colon and rectal cancer, pancreatic cancer, and stomach cancer, all treated with 5-FU or, or fluororacil, is they treat it with what's called a bolisk which is a, a, something that the cancer patient takes with them for a few days and wears in a fanny pack or in a, over the shoulder or something. And it treats the cancer. It, it gives them a regular dosage, a, a drip of, of chemotherapy over the course of many days um, so that they can actually take in a little bit more and get it a little more slowly and tolerate it more. Well, what this company has found is that with 5-FU, that they're able to actually achieve some more positive results uh, for these patients who are desperately in need. Nonetheless, the results that they came out today weren't as optimistic. They were better than the standard of care, the old way of treating, but they weren't a lot better. And I think some people were disappointed the stock sold off. You know, other people were out there defending these patients, finding out that of the 48 evaluable patients that they looked at, um, that, after, that they were able to get, you know, nine and a half months uh, of, of success compared to, or five months uh, from the former standard of care. But uh, the problem is these patients in the second round of treatment are constantly adjusting their dosages of 5-FU bolus, the bolus that they carry around with them, as well as other things that, that lowers their white blood cell count. So they take shots that give them a growth factor to give them more white blood cell, but maybe that's not enough. And so they adjust that. And they adjust the 5-FU bolus or get rid of it entirely then they have to drop out of the study. So this company is actually having a hard time conducting this study. Here's Catherine Rufner talking about the, the constant modifications that their patients are making in their early cycles 
of chemotherapy and whether or not that that neutropenia, that lack of white blood cells and the adjustment of that just makes this thing harder to study. Here's Catherine Ruffner. What we've noticed, and of course, sometimes elimination of the 5-FU bolus is not the only dose modification that's made. Sometimes the sites also decrease the arenatecan dose or decrease the 5-FU dose. Sometimes they add growth factors. Sometimes they don't. But what we can say is that for patients who exhibited or who demonstrated grade four neutropenia early on in treatment, meaning within the first one to two cycles, once the 5-FU bolus was decreased, the grade four neutropenia did not occur. So what I'd say there about Cardiff Oncology, I mean, these were kind of mixed results, but you can kind of hear the positive note in the tone of the voice of Catherine Ruffner, the chief medical officer there, suggesting that, you know, that, that there was a generally a better reaction um, when the 5-FU bolus was decreased, that the neutropenia, the lack of white blood cells, which happens with a lot of chemotherapy treatments, didn't happen with these patients. And that means they can tolerate more treatment and hopefully kill their cancer. FU cancer. 5-FU cancer. Why not? Yeah, yeah. All right, so coming up, we've got an interview that has already caused quite a stir. Um, uh, but I, I'll let you, I, I, I've got a lot of things. I don't want to judge, I don't want to prejudge the interview. I want you to hear this interview that was uh, combative at times, difficult at times, a company wanting to focus on the future, not look at the past. Us wanting to look at the past, because that tells you a lot about the future, I think. But listen to, this, listen to this interview that the company didn't like so much, safe to say. Uh, and tell us what you think after you hear Ideonomics CEO Alf Poor right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, as promised, we are joined right now by Alf Poor. He is the CEO of Ideonomics, which is, I'm going to say, as ridiculous a name of the company as Splunk or uh, uh, Twilio or, I don't know, I, I, the company naming was always a struggle. I named mine the Business Podcast Network, so that shows you how creative I am, Alf. We are glad to have you on. Thank you for joining us. What is Ideonomics? What are you trying to do? Thank you for having me, Corey. Pleasure to be on with you. Um, Ideonomics is a company which is focused on accelerating the commercial adoption of electric vehicles. By commercial adoption, I mean fleet operators. That's squarely where our focus as a business is. Uh, the name, um, Ideonomics, the name Ideonomics comes from, it's a made up word, as you can imagine, but it's, <laughs> uh, it's a combination of, um, of ideas, so innovation and economics, putting them together for, for viable business opportunities. So. It's a name that I inherited as I came into the CEO. It's not a, not a name I gave the company. Uh, when did you come in as CEO? I became the CEO uh, almost three years ago in uh, mid-February of 2019. And so uh, you, while you're in corporate in Nevada, you're in northern New Jersey right now, and you're selling or trying to sell uh, in China. Uh, we, we sell globally. We have a global footprint. We have operations in North America, Europe, and in Asia, so in China and uh, Malaysia. Um, we see those four markets as being the primary uh, markets for our commercial EV customers. Now, specifically, uh, what is the product that you're trying to sell? I, I love, by the way, in both your conference calls and in your 10Ks, you 
you cite uh, my former colleagues at Bloomberg, in particular Bloomberg New Energy Finance, whom you cite as doing excellent work. And I think that they do excellent, excellent analysis. They're, they are the gold standard. I, I love the guys at Bloomberg because we can rely on their information for our planning and, and for our um, you know, different market surveys we do globally. And they're probably the only ones that give us global coverage at this point. But um, the products that we sell, to answer your question, Corey, is we sell the charging systems, we sell the vehicles, and we provide the financing products to help commercial EV operators. So fleet operators like uh, local delivery companies, trucking companies, transit authorities, we help them confidently move from gasoline and diesel-based vehicles into electric. So um, talk to me very specifically. What kind of, are we talking about products or are we talking about consulting? It's, it's a mixture of both because there's a lot of education and advocacy that goes into um, getting the, the fleet operator to understand how to meet his needs for his carbon emission goals and any deadlines that may be looming at state or federal level. Um, but just to, to help you understand, uh, we provide charging systems for medium to heavy duty. So this is for trucks and buses and vans. Uh, we provide the products themselves, everything from two wheelers for local delivery through to heavy buses and trucks and everything in between. But we are not in the passenger car space. That's not a business area that we're in. Um, what, what is it in particular you see about the opportunities for this and when do you kind of see um, uh, uptake? Because we certainly see a big uptake in electric vehicles writ large. Yeah, the, the, the growth curve for passenger cars has already started, uh, led by Tesla, obviously, as the flagship name there. And you started to see many others come in, including the traditional OEMs. Um, the passenger cars, you sell those one at a time to consumers. That's been a much faster adoption process. Um, we're now beginning the growth curve for commercial vehicles. So this is the vans, trucks, the buses that you see that help us keep our commerce uh, ticking in countries all over the world. And that adoption is only just beginning now. And, and companies like Ideonomics have been putting together the foundation to support, support that growth curve that commercial fleet operators will require um, as we move closer towards the first deadlines in this country, which is 2030. Um, which, what deadlines specifically? What you uh, zero to? carbon emissions. So some of the progressive states like California, um, they're not going to allow um, vehicles into to be sold in, the, in their state after 2030. So commercial fleet operators are having to switch out, rotate out in their normal duty cycles, uh, the diesel-based and, and gasoline-based vehicles they operate, and they've got to move them into, into um, vehicles such as electric vehicles and maybe potentially hydrogen as that becomes economically viable. Now, what we've seen from the company sort of performance-wise um, is you guys have took a, a really big dip in earnings, um, uh, you know, in the last few years, um, 2000, you know, for annual earnings, at least for 2021, I, thought, I don't have the total, but we, we did, you've got about 90, 100 million in trailing revenues, but 2020 you had 28 million, which, which is to say that's good. But then you came down from a, a little under 50 million. What's, what do we see going on there when we look at your income statement? Um, I think it, it's looking back in the in the past of Ideonomics is an incomplete understanding of the business we are today, Corey. Um, we've transformed the business. So we previously weren't in the commercial electric vehicle sector. So the last couple of years, we've moved out of unprofitable business lines and into what we believe is a growth area, which is electric vehicles. And we've made those investments and acquisitions and raised capital to support that. So. Um, you can't really look back at our business over a three-year timeline because we've, we've changed dramatically 
um, in the time that I've been the CEO. And that's one of the reasons I was brought in to help give the company the, the direction and focus it needed. Yeah, explain it to me, because that, that when I look back and, and this from the history of it, I see, uh, and you go through your 10Ks and so on, you see the different names of the company. The company's had, uh, by my count, four or five different names over the course of the last six years. Um, you mentioned you coming as CEO three years. They had a bunch of CEOs uh, before that too, four or five, maybe six. I don't, I, don't I, I lost track, but it seems like it's been a, a, a changing, it's been, it's been a, a business with a changing uh, business model and changing focus. Yeah, absolutely. Is that fair? It, it, it is a fair comment. Um, I was brought into the business to help give them that focus. Um, Ideonomics in the past was in the media space. It was not called Ideonomics at that time. Um, and that business sunsetted. Um, that, that that line of business doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, you um, mentioned your in the conference call was a digital property. What was it? I didn't understand. I, I remember listening to it in the conference call, the most recent conference call, and it sounded like you were describing Zynga as if it was, as if it was uh, tractors on Farmville, digital property rights or something. <laughs> there was there was a lot of different uh, things that we were we were trying to do, and primarily licensing content, uh, TV and other types of media um, over into the Asian markets. And um, essentially, what happened for the company? This is prior my joining them, um, they had their lunch eaten by the B2B equivalents of Roku and Apple TV and Netflix and these other on-demand services that you see. So so the um, the need for that particular business model went away. The company then spent a couple of years trying to find a, uh, a new business model and uh, and it wanted to look at aggressive um, transformative markets and, and EV is the one that we finally settled on. I wish I was covering the company back when that change happened, because I saw your last CEO was named Bruno Wu. And I thought, if, if only to reference the Steely Dan song, are you with me, Dr. Wu? <laughs> are you with me, doctor? Because Dr. Wu was no longer, I don't know if he's a doctor, Bruno, Dr. Wu, but Dr. Wu no longer with. And was his focus at the time, was, was that part of that transition? Let's get out of digital property rights. Let's find something entirely different and simple like electric vehicles. I yeah, joke about he, it being simple. He was a, he was a gentleman who came in, uh, to try and help and, and put in a significant investment in the company to help it to try and revitalize the media business. And he realized he has a lot of media connections. He had a famous, uh, he's got a very famous wife who um, is something like the Barbara Walters, Oprah Winfrey over in China. Oh, really? She has chat shows and, and different you know, current affairs programming and things she does. So that they thought with, with their media contacts, they might be able to revitalize the business, but that ship had sailed. He's um, the Chinese Stedman. <laughs> Quite possible. Oh, yeah. uh, wonderful visionary, um, but of course, with visionaries, they they often come with you know a new idea uh, at a, on a frequent basis. So he was exploring a number of different uh, business models uh, when I was introduced to him and asked to come in and help them focus on on a particular area, so we could start to uh, to execute on some vision. And a good deal of the vision that we have in the EV sector uh, came from him because of his connections into China and the China EV market. Yeah you know, being somewhat ahead of what it is um, here in the U.S. How does, well, I'll tell you my Stedman story when, 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 our, when our microphones are off. It's a good <laughs> one, I promise. But um, wh how does that happen? How, do, how does like a Chinese Stedman introduce, like run into you and say, hey, can you make, make an electric car company out of my digital property rights company? Uh, well, well, essentially he was looking for talent and I'd, I'd made a very good career since the late 90s in, in helping startups and turnarounds. And, and particularly when it uh, when there was a focus on transformative technology or new technology. So I'd been involved with a number of successful startups and, and companies, like I said, we'd turned around, um, taking them through periods of high growth and profitability into exit. So I was the kind of um, semi-entrepreneur, semi-disciplined business executive 
um, that, that, uh, that the board at that time were looking for to come in and really help them steady the ship and, and get a focus and, and start to build a team and, and execute on those things. And, um, you know, we, we hit it off pretty quickly. Um, as I said, uh, the members of the, some of the members of the board, not just Mr. Wu, but uh, Shane McMahon, um, you know, we've got some, some interesting characters on the board, all of whom have, you know, different, different punching power that you need on a board. Um, and really convinced me to come in and, and come on this journey with them. And, and they've been, um, you know, good enough to allow me the room to be able to, to fashion the business in, in, you know, the mold that I wanted to under, under Mr. Wu's vision. So if we were to look at this company uh, a, a year from now, what, what are we going to see? What progress are we going to see in the business model? And what are sort of your, you know, this is, this is a time when everyone's doing their, their well, everyone's already done their planning, hopefully for this, com- this current year, but people have started to do, look at New Year's resolutions. They're starting to look at sort of big plans for the year. What's your big, what are your sort of top three focuses for the next 12 months, not the next 13 weeks? Yeah, so on, on the business level, we have three very clear ones. Um, the first one is we're going to focus on execution of contracts with customers. So these would be big commercial fleet operators, transit authorities, those port systems, those classic customers we already sell to. Um, second one would be beefing up our partnerships, particularly with our other OEMs and, and traditional automotive companies. What do you mean beefing um, up? Um, we already have some relationships. Uh, we, we have one of our crown jewels in our product suite is a, uh, a wireless charging system. Um, the company's called Wave. We own 100% of it. Um, not only do we sell Wave for applications on our own vehicles, but we also sell it integrated into other OEMs vehicles as well. So it's on buses and heavy trucks. It um, is. How, how, yes. many, how many vehicles are you in right now? Um, it's, it's difficult to go by vehicles because we have a lot of vehicle site hardware out there. And we, count the in, we, we count the in-ground charges. Um, hundreds. Hundreds. We, and where do you think that is a year from now? Uh, that'll be in the thousands. Yeah, it's really interesting, interesting uh, business line. And so how us. much can I look at like revenue per vehicle? Can I sort of try to imagine the business that way? Um, it's a difficult thing to do. I think the... I'm, I'm good at math. Okay. Um, By being good at math, I mean I'm not good at math, but try me. Well, we sell the vehicle side hardware at this time. Um, but one of the things I'd like us to get to, one of the reasons that we were attractive as an acquirer of Wave last year is that um, you've got to make this wireless charging ubiquitous. And as part of that, we want to drive down the cost of the vehicle side hardware so we can more or less get to the point where it's integrated by the OEMs. And, and I'd love to get to a position where we can give it away. We can't do that at this time. There's still a lot of technology costs there, but I'd love to get there because the, the real way I want to make money from Wave is those in-ground systems that we do and in deregulated markets charge for the energy that goes through them as well. It's, it's, it's such an interesting business that could go in so many directions. Uh, uh, but I would have got to imagine that things don't happen fast in China. Uh, well, China's a small part of, of, of what we do these days. It was our big focus a few years ago. Um, each year over year, it becomes less of our, uh, less of our revenues. But, but China's been a tremendous learning ground for us. Um, in the commercial fleet sector, it doesn't matter if that fleet operator is in Beijing, Berlin, Germany, or Boston, Massachusetts. His needs are the same. He has a cargo hold that holds people or goods, and he needs that vehicle to be reliable and on the road and making him money 365 days of the year. And, and so we've taken all the learnings from the business we've done in China, translated them to the US and European markets, and, and that's where we see most of our growth in the next few years. 
Now, let me ask you about uh, some of the things that have gone on. You know, I don't, like I said uh, before we talk, started this interview, I don't care about the stock. I don't want to talk about the stock price. I've never owned your stock. I've never shorted your stock. I have no intention to do any of those things. Um, but I want to understand the business. But there has been a lot of attention your company has gotten um, from a series of short seller reports. And I thought if it's okay with you, I'd like to ask a couple of questions about it. Not least of which the stuff I saw on Twitter quite a while ago about some, it looks like you had some pictures you put on some investor stuff that have been Photoshopped. And I wonder how that happened where you had old pictures posited as being new and pictures without a company logo on it where the company logo appeared to have been added, added to those photos. How did that happen? Yeah, look, there's, there's short sellers um, exist at the dark arts of the, of the financial markets, as you know. Yeah, yes, yes, we um, do, so, back so when I was a short seller. But, no, yeah. but I'm asking about the photo. No, I'm, so I'm going to talk to you about that. So, yeah, yeah. so it's, it's their job to look for one or two nuggets of, of information that are true and, and to intersperse between that lots of salacious, salacious headlines. So, you know, what you saw there was you know, something that we've explained to the regulators, we've, we've explained in detail, and, and I'm, you know, happy with, with how the company conducted itself in that regard. And I think short sellers will, will grab hold of everything they can. I don't think images are necessarily um, anything that people should be, be focused on in that regard. Those pictures were meant to be representational of what it will look like. So you, so you knew that the, the pictures were photoshopped when you put them in your I wasn't involved in the process to do that, but there was a oh, the company process did. internally. Somebody did. Yeah, there's a proper process internally and it was followed. Um, you know, the tough thing about short sellers Wait, is- Wait, sorry, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna unpack that just, sure. if I may. The process is to Photoshop pictures and that no, process was absolutely followed? not, no. What do you, I, I know that's no, not what you meant, so no. what did you mean? I meant that when, we, when the company produces uh, press releases or releases stuff over social media, there's a process that's followed. And the process was followed in every instance, so that, that's- So I, I'm, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, how do the pictures get photoshopped, and is that the process? No, the the what you have when you when you're building out a facility like that, you have pictures of of before, you have renderings of what it will look like in the future. So you know it, it's the company. These weren't labeled renderings of the future. These are labeled as here's our here's our facility, here's our logo, here's our cars, and in fact the pictures are many many years old, and the logo wasn't at the facility. Yeah, I mean, is that know, fair? Um, that, no, there was, there was, the company was represented there, but one of the images that was, one of the images that was released was a depiction. Yes. And, but it wasn't captioned as such. It wasn't, here's our future facility. I don't believe it was. No. Okay. So you mentioned the, the regulators looking at it. So this is what you, this is the explanation you gave to the SEC because they were one of the companies investigating your company, right? Yeah. Now, if you right? have a short selling, uh, if you have a short selling report, you will hear from the regulators. Um, Not so always. Hmm? Not always. Um, we, we certainly did, and many other companies have, particularly yeah. in the EV sector, which has been a, a big thematic um, um, approach for short sellers. Um, we've spoken to the regulators on this subject, and we've told them what we have. We've been very transparent, giving them all the information as you, as you do when you interact with regulators. Sure. And, and we consider the matter closed. Is you, um, uh, when you guys put out a press release and you said as, 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 as actually, no, I, I won't say it always happens, but I'll say, I don't remember when it hasn't, when there is a short seller report or, or short accusations about the company, usually the company will come out and say, we found inaccuracies or this is this completely inaccurate or inaccurate, whatever. You guys came out and said the report was inaccurate, but I wonder if there's anything in particular that was inaccurate in the, there were, I guess there were two firms that published on you guys. Um, what specifically was inaccurate? Um, I, again, I think what, what you see 
is, you know, they'll look back in your 10Ks and other things and they'll find, you know, cumulative losses, different things that are, you know, uh, uh, you know, part of your disclosure that look negative, but are not always negative. They're not always cash losses or things like that. And then they'll intersperse a lot of salacious headlines with them and they'll put it out. I mean, I, I don't really want to go over that again because it makes my blood boil because it didn't, <laughs> it, didn't, it. It, it didn't cost any of the executives or management at iDynomics anything other than the time to work with the regulator and others sure. to, to knock back those accusations. But it did impact the Well, and the law firm probably cost you a lot of money. You hired mm -hmm. DLA Piper to, report, to do a report yeah. uh, or, or presumably a report. Is there a report coming from them or no? Uh, no, you, you don't make those reports uh, public. Those are, that's an internal committee report. Um, that we had them do. And, and I was the person that brought DLA in. I brought them in because they had people in the ground on China. And uh, they reported back to the board and, and they were able to, you know, push back on, on you know, everything that the, the short sellers had, had claimed. And, you know, it, the people that lost here, remember, short sellers take a position to make money. Sure. No, and, and to be to be clear, as I just mentioned, I have no position in your company. I don't know of anyone that I know who's short your company or anything of that that. But I, I also feel like having been uh, an investor, both long and short, mm -hmm. I want to give you a chance that I feel like, honestly, you haven't really had to to really tell your story and um, specifically story, cite story, the inaccuracies and so our on. Our story is there's a lot of really good, talented people working hard at Idynomics sure. to make a change. And yeah, when short great. sellers come, they do it to make money. And the loser As there, do the longs. As do the, As the, the investors, yeah. yeah same. But but the lo the losers in this episode, despite the distraction and, and the, the time and money investment in recovering from a short selling attack, was a lot of retail shareholders. These are yeah, the folks. Well, and, who, these are the folks who lost the money. And institutional shareholders and executives of the company. I'm sure you all lost a lot of money when the stock price declined. Well, um, none of us have sold our, our stock at this point, so none of us have suffered any. You never made a dime. Never lost a dime. I, I feel your pain. Yeah. Uh, but just a. a tie it with a bow. There isn't any singular inaccuracy in the short report that you can point out at all in any either of the reports. Nothing that comes to mind at this point. Okay. Um, uh, just good to know. I, it's like I said, I, I feel like, you know, those, those guys, are, sometimes the, the longs put out these lengthy, the, the, you know, the, the investment banks and the analysts put out lengthy reports with lots of data. The short sellers occasionally put out reports with lots of data and lots of, inter in both cases, long and short, lots of interpretation of that data. And I just feel like, you know, it's one of the reasons we do this show. Maybe the biggest reason we do this show is I want to hear from companies at great length to understand their businesses better. Well, I think, I think you know, the one thing I would leave you with here is um, we saw the short selling attack as an attack on our operations in China. And because China is opaque from the outside for the West, I think the short sellers took advantage of that. And I've made, you know, significant through acquisition and, and organic businesses have grown. I've, I've deliberately... Uh, taken a lot of the emphasis off of the China operations and made our business yeah. a lot more robust with a lot more global footprint. We own a lot of American companies now. We didn't own them at the time of the short selling attack. And I think I've transformed the business to, to remove some of that natural, um, you know, uh, I think it's easy to bash people with operations in China. And so it was my job to well, make I sure mean, we, right. it, was in, my, it was my job to make sure we had a much more diversified sure. company. In, def so in defense that, of them, I'd say that, if you're going to call a, a negative report an attack, you should call a positive report a promotion, or maybe just leave the adjectives off. It was the report. You <laughs> want to say it's inaccurate or not inaccurate? I, I just, having been on both sides of this, I just, you know, I, yeah, and, look, and as far as the report, I, at least I saw in the in the short uh, uh, reports that I saw, I saw they actually sent people to China 
took pictures of, of facilities and did actual original reporting on the ground in China, which I will also say that from all, all of the de minimis amount, admittedly, of long research that I read, long promotions that I read of the company, none of them sent anyone to China. None of them went to your operations and looked at things in China, as far as I could see. Yeah. So I, you Again, know, you're no, saying would, that they're using the opacity of, of China as a, as a cover. I would say they actually went there and put their boots on the ground, unlike the, the promotional long reports. Or yeah, the, I, I would, I would just put a bow on this just by saying, we're a very different company today. I saw the vulnerabilities of operating just in China and, and yeah. you know, the, the advantageous uh, way we were taken advantage of by, uh, by short sellers. So I've done everything I can to build a transparent business with US revenues, consolidated into our group with high profile acquisitions in the US so that we're not the same company we were at that time. So we might expect less China business in the future then? Or um, less? It? Definitely you'll see the other aspects of the, of the business growing. China is still an important market for us. It continues to feed us with tremendous information and opportunities about where commercial EV is going. It's been our training ground for our operations elsewhere. Uh, we're still dedicated to it. We revamped the entire team last year, brought in a whole new leadership starting to see some great results out of them, but it's a part of what we do. Whereas when the short yeah. selling report came, it was all of what we did. And I think that's a really important thing for me to, the distinction for me to make to your listeners today is um, this company, the majority of its products and everything are made in America. And, yeah. and we, we're a service provider in China only. Um, speaking of made in America and electric, I'm so near to the, uh, to the heart of Elon Musk. I'm not near his heart, actually. We're not, he's not a big fan. But uh, uh, I'm quite near Tesla's headquarters or soon to be former headquarters as they moved to Texas and away from California taxes. But they have made a big deal about uh, crypto, Dogecoin, Bitcoin. Is crypto next for you? Uh, not at this point, no. No? no? Why I, not? I, 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 a big part of my job and a big part of the last five minutes of narrative we've had is making sure that my company is bulletproof and robust and beyond reproach. And I think that, um, you know, cryptocurrency exciting at a personal level. Um, I don't think there's room for it within a public company right now, particularly one that, uh, you know, that, that is still in development and, and you know, looking to take advantage of its growth curve in commercial EV. Um, if it becomes more mainstream, but I, I'm not looking to draw any additional scrutiny from regulators or others around, you know, things like cryptocurrency. So. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, put my wood in the tried and trusted and transparent places of the world in the short term. Uh, which, which a lot of crypto is not, to be sure. Um, Alf, I'm grateful for your time. I hope my questions aren't too tough for you. You seem like a, a, um, you want to get the the real story out there, so I'm grateful for that. No, listen, absolutely, I'm I'm here. The I can't, you know, if every audience is a friendly audience, like you said earlier, it's just going to be promotional. So I'm here to answer the questions. The you know the curveballs as well as the uh, as well as the free throws. So, whatever you, you need to know from me, I'm I'm a very open, transparent, forthright guy. Uh, that's the way I manage the company. Um, my investors are aware of that, and and you know I think that's you know at least for the situation that I inherited, I think that's the way I'll continue to be. I wish you a lot of luck. We certainly all could use a carbon uh, freer world, and uh, any degree to which economics can help that is a good thing. Uh, Alf Poor is the CEO of Ideanomics. Uh, joining us from northern New Jersey. We appreciate your time. All right, coming up next on the drill down, we've got that one number of the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot about ideonomics. You'll want to hear that when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. 
That's era, A-I-E-R-A.com. And we hope you're enjoying the Drill On podcast wherever you are, whether it's when you're walking about on your phone, sitting at your desk, who knows, maybe even on your smart speaker. That's all a lot easier if you subscribe to the show. Click that subscribe button. You'll be alerted to every single Drill Down podcast. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We're back with the drill on by that one number that tells us a whole lot. And after telling you so many times, I don't care about the stock price. That's the bite, Isaac, the stock price. So this, so uh, Ideanomics, interesting interview. Uh, how would you characterize that interview that just happened? I would characterize it, I would say, enlightening. Oh, come on. That's a pansy-ass response. Hey, Give I'm a pansy-ass. I'm a pansy-ass. Listen, it was interesting to see you go go hold them accountable to to the numbers and hear his response or the I thought pictures. he did I thought he did um I thought he did well handling this question I thought when he said that pictures weren't important having placed the pictures in his own documents they seemed important at that time I think in any case that drill down bite that one number that tells a whole lot is about the stock price now the company has a 6 million 600 million market cap as we record this show but only about a single digit stock that is stock trading uh, under $2 right now um, uh, importantly, the stock is down 78%. There's your bite. Since those reports came out, uh, questioning some of the, um, performance and statements and in, yes, photographs from the company, um, that has had six CEOs and six CFOs and a multitude of, uh, of names of companies and focuses over the years. Um, we wish them all the success in the world, but, uh, um, you can see that, um, those reports that came out now many months ago certainly held a lot of sway with investors uh, who had questions about the company, maybe even going into this, uh, a company that is, is long on promise and thus far short on results. But like I said, we wish them well. You've been listening to Drill Line Podcast. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster's our executive producer. Ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Line is a production of the Business Podcast Network.